Good morning, my name is Albert, and we'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, from chapter 9 and verse 18, and it is on page 1385 in the Bibles in the pews. Reading from verse 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. Come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread all through the region. The region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was, drived, was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it'd be great to have a Bible open at Matthew chapter 9. Uh, how about I pray for us as we think about what we've just read? Let's get that down, though. Yeah. Let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you for your word, and we want to pray for two things. Uh, we pray for clarity. I pray for clarity for myself, and we pray for clarity for ourselves. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us into truth and trust. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The picture, let's get that one back up. Uh, I think his name's Tim uh, in the inflatable unicorn there. He decided to go to the beach one day in Florida and take his inflatable unicorn, as you do. And then he decided to go fishing from his inflatable unicorn. And I guess you could say Tim was successful with his fishing 
uh, because the story goes he managed to snag himself a shark. A shark with enough size and enough get up and go to drag him that far out into the deep, about two miles offshore. Now, it is pretty funny. Like, I mean, the year nine boy in me is like, where's my unicorn? Um, I want to go with that. But it's also pretty frightening as well. Uh, inflatable unicorns come with a warning on them, not a life-saving device for a reason. Uh, they, they don't stay up forever. Uh, it's pretty frightening that far out in the, dr in the drink. Uh, I reckon Tim is possibly thinking something like, my life's over. <laughs> this is how it ends. If I was him, I'd be thinking, oh, that someone could give me my life back. I might drop the picture. It's that kind of situation and sentiment, I guess, that we're coming into in Matthew 9. You've got people who are in desperate, dire situations, a bit like Tim, but maybe more distressing, thinking perhaps life's over and there's nothing they can do about it. Oh, that I would get my life back. And it flows out of what we looked at last week. You remember, Jesus comes, doesn't he, to meet our greatest need. He comes to meet the need of the forgiveness of sins. Sins lie at the heart, don't they, really, of the misery that we come up against in this passage. Two things, namely death and shame. Two things that we're desperate for relief from. Two things that we experience because of sin and our situation is helpless and hopeless. Uh, last week, right before we got into this passage, remember Jesus points out to John's disciples as they come to him with a question about fasting, about religious practice. He says, look, I haven't come to patch that up. I haven't come to put a patch on old religion to make things better for you. And you see very clearly here the old way of religion, of Judaism, of people doing a righteousness their way. It's no help. It doesn't do anything doesn't do anything with death and shame. So first, you see, Jesus comes to give us our life back from death. As we get into this passage in verse 18, Jesus is probably in Matthew's house uh, prior to this, pointing out again the uselessness of religion, that he's come to do something new. And again, as if to underscore it, verse 18, who comes to him? A ruler, we read. And I think it's safe to say from Mark's Gospel, this is Jairus, and we know that he's a synagogue ruler a highly respected religious man and it doesn't help a shred when you look at verse 18. He's on his knees before Jesus. My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. You know, thankfully, I have never had to follow a coffin out of a church that's child-sized. For someone else... On my own. Look, if you don't know us, my wife and I have two kids with high needs and there are days where it feels like something has died. It's nothing like this. Like some of what you know, some of you. So hard and heavy. So verse 19, Jesus rises to the occasion. He's off to Jairus' house. And we'll come back to the woman in a moment. But the professional mourners in the house tell you something, don't they? They tell you that Jairus' daughter is not in a coma, she's not just a little bit ill, 
she's not asleep. Actually, when Jesus says she's sleeping, he's not playing games here. It's the biblical shorthand for what happens to our bodies while we wait for something, while we wait for the authoritative word of the king. He gives orders, doesn't he? Notice how Jesus is just in command all the time. Go away. You can laugh if you like, because death is about to be ushered out the door with just a touch in verse 25. He takes the little girl by the hand. And I don't know, can you imagine it? Probably not. We can't get our heads around this, can we? Synapses firing again, her eyes open, big suck in of air, the colour comes back and she rises. We need to be clear about this. Jairus's goodness, he's ruling a synagogue, it doesn't do it, the mourners don't wake her up. It's Jesus's authority over death for those who are desperate for life. It's a miracle, but it's a foretaste, isn't it, of the greater miracle that he will do, yes, for himself, but for you and me. He rises to the occasion here so that we will rise with him one day. I was reading during the week, Martin Luther, um, the you know, German reformer, his daughter Magdalena died in the Great Plague and it said that while the carpenters were nailing down the lid of her coffin, he shouted, hammer away, hammer away, for on the last day she will rise. And I don't think he's being melodramatic. You know, it's not chest beating. It's what you can say because Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul says it for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know, we do grieve around death, but not like the rest of mankind who have no hope, he says. This should never be boring, should it? This should never get old. Because as healthy as you might feel yourself to be today, or as frail as you might fear, death in the busyness of life is never really far away. Like... I hop on my push bike early of the morning and go for a treadle um, and all it takes is for me to have a bit of a lapse of concentration and it's all over. I tackle that hill that a middle-aged bloke shouldn't tackle as hard as he does. Someone in a car just doesn't give me enough room. It's that close. 100% of you, hate to break it to you, will face this moment. We're desperate, aren't we? And Jesus comes to give you your life back spiritually and bodily. Now, I understand that that all feels a little bit far off still. And maybe the way I'm talking for you, if you're a little bit sceptical, it reinforces the idea that Christianity is just sort of pie in the sky for when you die. But day by day, the fallout of the fall, the brokenness of our relationships and the mess in our minds and the way we feel about ourselves, there's days where you think... Oh, maybe I wish I was dead. And that's the second thing we see in this passage. Jesus comes to give us our life back with those things, the things maybe that we might call the shame and the mess of life. Now, look, um, I was telling Noree this and she said, why not? Um, it's embarrassing to admit this, but when I used to read this passage as a little boy, this woman bleeding in verse 20, bleeding for 12 years, I used to think, what, from her nose? She's got a cut that she just can't get right. Oh boy. Embarrassing to admit that, but it's not as embarrassing and as awkward as it is for her to live with this. 
And in case you're still wondering, I'll spell it out for you. It's gynecological bleeding. It's a discharge of blood, a period that's gone for, let's say, 12 years. And again, great that I get to talk about this this morning. Middle-aged man talks about women's stuff in church. Like, what could go wrong? Um, I'm not trying to be flippant because it's one of those moments, really, isn't it, where the Bible just kind of blusters in and wakes you all up on Sunday morning. And it should actually arouse our compassion, shouldn't it? You know, for the guys in the room who aren't, look, let's face it, we are not always the most sensitive of creatures, are we? Particularly when it comes to the hard and awkward and embarrassing things that women face. I mean, this passage this week pulled me up and made me go, do I really, do I understand, do I care? Are there things that I can do maybe that, lessen the stigma or the awkward. This is just a line in our Bibles, but let's think about what it's done to her life. It's desperate. It's, oh, that someone would give me my life back kind of stuff. I mean, in the ancient world, can you imagine what it's like dealing with that time of the month? There's no sanitary products. There's no Nurofen. Uh, We know from Mark's account of this, she has spent everything on doctors who have not been able to fix this. And on top of it all, in the law, in Leviticus 15, she's unclean. Uh, There's a range of bodily discharges that rendered you, man or woman, unclean. A woman's period is one of them, unclean for seven days after your monthly period. Anything you touch, anything you sit on, anyone you touch or come near, you know, your life is on hold for seven days. And without getting too far into the rough on this, I think we need to understand that unclean doesn't mean guilty necessarily. Don't hear me saying anything like the Bible says periods make women sinful. Uh, Leviticus is about boundaries between a holy God and the common. And common things are either unclean or clean. Fit for God or not, in a sense, fit for God. To come near God, you need to be clean. And the why and the wherefore of all of what God prescribes in Leviticus, I guess it's open to conjecture. But I wonder if God gave those rules to remind Israel that while they are his people, they are privileged, absolutely, they've got a deeper problem, which is that you just cannot stay clean on your own back. You can do all the right things, you can keep the rules and stay within the boundaries, but sooner or later this month you're going to become unclean. Or you might have one of those dreams. You know what I mean. Unclean easy as. You need more than just some rules to be fit with God. You need more than clean. Now, you're all looking confused and I digress. Let's get back to the woman. Like, her life is on hold. Not for seven days, but for 12 years. Uh, Doug O'Donnell, in his commentary on this, puts it really memorably, in a sense, the discharge has discharged her from life, from wealth, from work, from family, from any touch, from marriage, 12 years of shame and stigma. Might as well be dead. And shameful things are like that. I've been chewing on this a bunch during the week. It strikes me as incredibly unfair. I mean, it's not her fault But again, it's kind of the way shame works. There's things that happen to us. And again, like I think a bunch about disability 
and things that happen to our bodies. And I know that things are better now than they were a bunch of generations ago, but there is still stigma. I mean, I walk down the street with my two kids and you get some funny looks and it's awkward. There's things that are done to us and we feel unclean and ashamed. I don't mean to trigger anyone, but I guess I think of victims of sexual abuse, maybe more often women, and they feel guilty and ashamed. And it's so sad. That's the sad way shame works. There seems to be this passive side to it, and it's the way the fall works on our bodies and our minds and other people's attitudes to us. It's desperate stuff. Of course, you know, there's another side to shame again. There's things that we do do, we actively do, that we should feel ashamed about. And you might say, hey, it feels even natural. It feels like something my body just does. And if anybody found out about it, I'd die. On it goes. Like, I mean, what is it for you? You feel unclean and shame then has this excluding sense to it, doesn't it? Uh, You exclude yourself because you just can't bear the idea that somebody might find out this thing about you or others do find out about it and they hold you at arm's length. And then in terms of the way we relate to God, we just think, my goodness, he could not possibly want to forgive me again. Desperate stuff. Notice, though, it's desperation in this passage that moves this woman. In verse 21, even if I just touch his cloak, the the tassel on his garment, an indirect touch, I'll be healed, or you could translate it as saved. Verse 22, have a look. Jesus turns, sees her, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed or, yes, saved you. From that moment, she is physically, physically healed but saved from her shame. This is the heart, isn't it, of of Jesus for sufferers from shame and sin. It's a picture of what he comes to do. In Levitical terms, Jesus is the cleanest person who's ever lived. The things that make us cringe should make him recoil in horror from us. But in Matthew's Gospel, what have we seen? Who is he drawn to all the time? And who is drawn to him? Unclean people. And he absorbs it and they get their lives back. You're seeing over and again here in this passage a picture of how the cross is going to deal with the problem of how a holy God can be with unclean people. At the cross, he absorbs it all. Your guilt, yep, the penalty for your sin, but that sense of shame that I'm not good enough for whatever reason, actually that's what he deals with. You know, it's 12 years since she's heard the word daughter. I reckon. And that's what I want you to understand today. That's what Jesus comes to call you. And if you're mawkish about that, guys, let's go with son. Daughter. Son. That close. Whatever it is that embarrasses you, ashames you, makes you feel miserable. He's actually come to deal with that. The cross really means no shame. There's nothing that can render you unclean in God's sight. And please, this is not positive self-talk. This is not trying to psychologise away the ick. This is about embracing what is true of us when we trust Jesus to save. This brings us to where we need to land. Like, do you see that about Jesus finally? 
It's bubbling away all through the passage, isn't it, with Jairus and the woman. And one last picture drives it home. In verse 27, you've got two blind men following Jesus as he hoofs out of Jairus' place. Have mercy on us. But look what they call Jesus. Son of David. That is like stellar 2020 vision of who Jesus is. And in response to Jesus' question, notice how he couches it. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they call him Lord. Yes. Now contrast that a little further down with some very religious people again. Bible people, people with revelation, the Pharisees, as Jesus heals that demon-possessed man. What do they see in verse 34, right at the end? It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. There's this passage in Isaiah 35 that talks about God coming to save his people and all the expectations around the Messiah coming and what he'll do. Isaiah 35 verse 5 says, when the Messiah comes in a sense, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. It couldn't be more clear, could it? The blind guys, this is my Messiah, the Pharisees, the religious elites with the Bible see a devil. It's a warning, isn't it? You can have your religion, you can have your church, you can have revelation even, but you can be willfully, spiritually blind. Beware of thinking that keeping your nose clean, being religious, being conventionally clean, saves you. Again, on the way into the passage for Jairus, is it helping him? (laughs) No. If you want your life back from the dead, if you want relief from your shame, it boils down to how you see Jesus. And so we are talking about faith, like in the kids' talk, we are talking about trusting in Jesus. And I think we've got to be clear about this, modern people, even if you've been sitting in church for ages, look, again, it's as embarrassing as me admitting to not knowing what the woman was bleeding from. I used to think faith was feelings. And I guess if you took a survey of people out there today, what what is faith? They'd say, oh, it's a leap in the dark. You know, it's it's the feelings and the hunches that we have about the stuff in the gaps of our scientific and rational knowledge. Oh, it's a superstition. Now, I do think of Jairus, it seems like a big leap to go from being the guy who sees there's this bloke in Galilee who's casting out demons, he's healing people, to going, he can raise my daughter from the dead. But I wonder if he's joining the dots and he sees the Messiah that's promised in his scriptures. You know, Jesus doesn't correct Jairus. He doesn't say to the woman, don't treat me like a lucky charm. (laughs) doesn't do any of that. They are desperate, but it's well-founded desperation because faith is knowledge. Even if it's somewhat imperfect, they've got the perfect posture. Kneeling and grasping for Jesus. Faith is knowing salvation when you see it and taking it with both hands. You'll get your life back. That's why Jesus says to the lady, your faith has healed you. Tim from Florida gets his life back, doesn't he? Not because he's an expert at navigating an inflatable unicorn back to the shore. You know, there's a guy throwing a rope to him and he takes it. He trusts the bloke on the other end of the line. And I reckon if Tim had said, no, I'm right, (laughs) 
we'd think that's rocks in your head material. And he'd be dead. Those unicorns deflate, trust me. They, in my pool, they go down, right? That's what the Pharisees are doing constantly throughout Matthew's Gospel. They're sort of saying, our inflatable unicorn is fine, thank you. And it's tragic and it's foolish. And yeah, sure, they've got their religion, they've got a way of righteousness, it makes them good people, it maybe even makes them feel good and do good to others, but it's about as useful as an inflatable unicorn when you're two miles out to sea with a shark at the end of your fishing line when it comes to dealing with death and shame. Why would you do that with Jesus? I mean, if you're wondering today, sign up for Simply Christianity. Find out who he is, see clearly. Jesus doesn't come, friends, to hold us at arm's length and make us feel worse about who we are. He comes to relieve us from our shame and he comes to give us our lives back. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the way it speaks to life as it really is. It speaks to our desperation and despair about dying and death. It speaks to our shame and how we feel about ourselves. And so we pray this morning in thanksgiving that you do not leave us in desperation about dying. And we thank you that you do not leave us stuck in our shame. You don't leave us unclean and at arm's length. We pray in thanksgiving for Jesus, your son, the son of David, the Messiah, who made the blind see, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who takes away our shame, the one who at the cross died to give us our life back. Father, give us eyes to see him clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because Jesus has dealt with our sin and our shame and gives us our lives back, we can now.